Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and I'm pleased to host today a talk on ethics with a gentleman I have known and respected for a very long time, Stephen Northcutt. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, I remember one of the first time they got to know Stephen was more than a decade ago when I took his SANS class that he had written. And I remember at the first break, marching up to the head of the class and saying, I want to teach this course. And he took me seriously. And he said, okay, if you want to do that, you need to do this, this, and this. And I went through there and, and that began me on my journey with SANS. And so I would thank you again for that opportunity because I had a great time. It has been a wonderful journey. Mark Sox came up one day when we were doing a trial run in his leather flight jacket and said, I think I can play in this game. And he was right. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of background for you. I mean, for folks who have not had the privilege to get to know you, maybe a little bit about your background. I started in cybersecurity when my Sun 3 workstation got hacked. I was making coffee and my hard disk light was flashing and I had no idea what to do, but I got onto the console and realized I had a connection from some IP address from Australia and just reached up and pulled out the power cord, which was the wrong thing to do. On a Unix machine, they don't like that. <laughs> but I felt violated by that moment. And so I began my journey. I was in a Navy lab, so you could do anything you wanted to as long as you could funding for it. And I found people that were willing to fund cybersecurity. So I wrote an intrusion detection system and the rest has been quite a journey. It has indeed. I know you, I think you started out as a, a Navy rescue swimmer way back in the day. I was young once. I love the greeting you with the aloha because you start out in Hawaii and came out, you're on the mainland now, but Throughout that quite a journey, you've done a huge influence. I mean, you worked with Alan Paller at Sands, and you really built out the GAC and turned that into something that has made a difference for thousands of people in their professional careers. It's been fun. You get to meet the most wonderful people in cybersecurity. They, a bunch of creative and energetic people that are focused on making a difference. And so I mostly served as a connector as, as opposed to a doer, and it worked out very well. What's interesting, you're right, everybody's creative. They come up with a great number of ideas, and hopefully most of them are good. But as we know in cybersecurity, there's awful lot of bad ideas, or at least things that are done for bad reasons. And it has the reason for this opportunity to do this show about ethical decision-making and ethics in general, mostly as it focuses for CISOs, cybersecurity leaders, and the like. And so if we think about the concepts of ethics, we say, well, what does that mean? And we could come up with a lot of different definitions, but ethical behavior, how would, what would be your, your cut at that? And again, this is not a quiz. We're not trying to compare ourselves to Webster's Dictionary or anything. Well, the more I've thought about it, the more I believe it comes down to the pursuit of higher principles. In the earliest days, you had an interesting problem in cybersecurity. The people who were, the first 200 people Quite a large number of them were hackers at night and cybersecurity professionals in the daytime. But the thing is, hackers in its original term were people who were fooling around with the operating system or with the network 
not necessarily with the intention of doing a bad thing. They were just trying to do a different thing. And I'll concur with you as I try to explain to people, Albert Einstein hacked Newtonian physics. I mean, Newton thought about things that moved at the speed of apples. And Einstein said, well, what about if you're moving at the speed of light? Would things be a little bit different? And as a result, you get the square root of one minus V square over C square factor that it sort of changed all that relativistic calculation. So what I like to explain to people when you say hacker, and I had to laugh at it because several years ago, I had the privilege to testify up on Capitol Hill. And I think it was the time was Senator Kerry's committee on veterans and small business. And I had sent in the information back then because I was serving as a, the president of the Naval Reserve Association, later the Association of the United States Navy. And I got a call back from their Kerry a couple of days later. I said, Mr. Hardy, oh yeah, hi, I'm calling from Senator Kerry's office. We're just doing kind of a routine background check. And it looks like you might be a hacker. That could be a problem. And like, wait a minute. Okay, refresh your screen. See, there's no problem anymore, is there? And of course, <laughs> you and I get that joke right away. But I had the opportunity to go forward. But there is a lot of misunderstanding there. Back in the day, you had edited and put together a book called IT Ethics Handbook, Right and Wrong for IT Professionals. And the good news was I ordered a copy of it and started reading it in preparation for the show. The bad news is I got diverted two days ago up to Washington, D.C., where I am now, and in the book sitting back at home. So I can't go through and, and quiz you on things in there, but not that that was really necessary, because what you had been able to do is set forth a number of different scenarios and provide kind of like, what would the little angel on one shoulder say? What would the devil on the other shoulder say? And then let's come up with some sort of look. How did you get the idea for that in the first place? Well, I was dealing with my web coders a lot and they kept using the term use case. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, that makes a bunch of sense, right? What we have is a specific situation or a specific use case. And I realized that there are some people that are absolutely by the book. Everything is black and white. They, they just can't see past the edges. They can't see the shades of gray. And there are other people who don't see in terms of black and white. So when the idea came up of doing a book on ethics, I decided to do it by use cases. You're in this situation where a supervisor comes and asks you to see one of his employees' computer records for the last 24 hours, right? And from a black and white perspective, unless there's a policy allowing you to do that, you probably can't do that. But then that supervisor might have a reason that they're asking and you know, want to be concerned about the best interests of the organization or the company. And so that idea was to take the, the hard and fast, forgive me for using this word in today's political environment, conservative approach and the liberal approach. But I don't mean that in terms of politics at all. I mean it in terms of cybersecurity and by the book and black and white and, and then shades of gray. Yeah, and in a way, if we think of the old Myers-Briggs and we take a look at the judging you know, versus perception, where those who have done their Myers-Briggs and have their four-letter codes, I was an ENTJ and I don't others. I, I used to joke that people who are sports fans were ESPNs and their Myers-Briggs. But that last letter, whether you tend to be J at judging, which is this is the rules and you follow the rules as compared to the P, the perception, which is, well, consider the circumstances. And in my opinion, as we become effective leaders, we have to, even if you're kind of a natural born J as I tend to be, 
I've tried to learn to be a little bit more of the perceptive. I try to say, well, I wasn't there. I didn't know the exact circumstances, and I'm not going to assume them. Let me ask, what happened? What did you see that caused you to make a decision that I don't think I would have made under the circumstances? And then you go, oh, wow, yeah, you're right. And so on one hand, you could be too judgmental, so to speak, and then there's no room for creativity, and you really limit what your staff can do. And then on the extreme other end, you might even have anarchy, where there's really no discipline because there's no consequence, because everybody has an excuse saying, well, it felt good at the time. And okay, well, I guess if it felt good, it feels that's the way to do. But back in the IT security world, what we find out is that there's a lot of gray area, as you had said. Many of us who had learned about cybersecurity learned about it by, well, practicing it. Now, I'm at an age where when I started finding out how things worked in that world, there were no laws on it. You didn't break any rules because there weren't any. But at the same time, there were some ethical boundaries. And I say my mom raised me well because I never tried to steal anything or break anything. And when you found something, you, you came to the owner and said, hey, there's a problem. We could fix that. And, and that was my first summer job in cybersecurity. And I'm going to be dating myself here, but that was the summer of 1976 when I got hired by the state of New York to plug all the holes that all the high school kids have been punching the last three years, of which I was probably the biggest hole puncher. But it was a whopping $2.10 an hour. Minimum wage is two thirty, but the state could pay below minimum wage. And, and so as a result, that's how I spent my summer is amassing between that and a night job working at a grocery store as a night manager three nights a week for two thirty an hour. I pulled home almost a hundred dollar bill every week after taxes. And that but saved up off for college and off we went. Well, we've seen what's happened in our cybersecurity career where it's exploded and some people make a tremendous amount of money, quite legitimately so. But then there's a lot of people who are trying to make money in a not so legitimate way. The thing people doing a ransomware, which we would say pretty pretty straightforward is not on the side of good ethics. And then looking at people who, oh, look what I found, and maybe I'll just borrow or resell. And then that's not ethical. But as we get closer and closer toward normal behavior, what we find then is a lot of these ethical decisions may not really lie in the area of crime or anything like that. They have to do with how do you deal with your people? What do you do about circumstances? What's consequential? What's not consequential? And things like that. Any thoughts in terms of a general framework about how to think about ethical? Well, human capital is the most important asset that any organization has. And I'm going through my second experience with a near family-owned organization where everybody's related to one another and this, that, and the other thing, which is how Sam started, of course. I was employee 13 there. And it's just amazing how important it is to manage people when they get strung out, whatever the right word is, but they're, they're put out and you have to calm them down and talk them down and get them to understand that the world has not ended because somebody gave you a check mark for whatever the problem is of the moment, but try to look at that bigger picture and understand how much potential we have going forward. I don't think that's ever going to change. I think humans are the force behind cybersecurity or anything else, and they have to be managed and they have to be managed with great care. Yeah. And as we look at that, I think we find out that if we go back to some of the philosophers and thinking about ethical theory and some of the 
the research that I've taken a look at, we kind of come up with some basic approaches that people could use, like uh, different theories, a consequentialist theory. You're concerned with the ethical consequences of an action, the consequentialist theory, which you're more concerned about the intentions of who's making it. And then the agent center, which is more about the ethical status of an individual, kind of less concerned about the morality and things such as that. And this can go all the way back to the ancient Greeks, and I'm not going to go get into Greek philosophy here, although it's interesting to go ahead and, and read things like Plato and Aristotle and things like that, who really were talking about the consequentialists, about having a communal life, that we should all act as a society for our best interest. And then you compare that to like Immanuel Kant or St. Augustine about personal will and how that's important and how we line up for that. And we end up with categorical imperatives that you only act according to the maxim, like you can do good all the time. So it should be a, a universal law. And then we have a duty to that. And then John Locke took a different approach and look at the right, saying the best ethical action is that which protects the ethical rights of those who are affected by the action. And we can get into other things like you know, Aristotle's agent center theories that you consider the whole of a person's life, not that single choice. And we look at virtue and things such as that. So with centuries of writing about ethics, and most of us never really take the time to go reading into that, what is it that tends to cause people to choose ethical behavior, in your opinion, or maybe choose less than ethical behavior and is that something that's negotiable or does that end up being somebody is just going to be an ethical person or not? And you just accept them the way they are. Great question. I'm going to take this from the lens or perspective of being a manager, a CIO or CISO, because that's mm -hmm. your podcast. And in that particular case, as a manager, the really important question is my focus on concern for tasks or concerns for people. The entire time I was the CEO of SAMS, while I was concerned about people, I was far more concerned about tasks. We were a growing organization and we needed to execute again and again and again. And sometimes we had to make the decision that the needs of a particular person did not override the mission that needed to be accomplished. That's always true when you're in the military, as a, another example. You care about your people, but you must accomplish your mission. Today, I'm in the construction business, and you have safety is job one, right? So concern for people is job one, right? The worst thing that can happen to you in construction is have the excavator run over somebody. I mean, it's just, there's no excuse for that. And, and there's no mercy for that from the insurance world. So you have to be concerned about your people. So partly it's situation, right? We've talked about different management strategies differ in the situations that you're in. And so I think that's critical point. The other thing I learned from a guy named G. Mark Hardy is the human frailty factor. And I have been carrying that with me ever since you first mentioned it, because I have realized from time to time, good people just make incomparably bad decisions sometimes. There was a news story about two years ago of a lady who drank a little too much alcohol in Florida, where you live, 
and there was an alligator and she decided to go talk to the alligator. And soon there was no lady that drank too much alcohol. And her last words were, I won't do this again. Right. And so we have to be aware of the human frailty factor and, and realize that some of the things that we think might be an ethical decision were just a moment where they weren't, they weren't in the moment, a moment where somebody wasn't in the moment, they weren't paying attention and they just did something incomparably stupid. Yeah. And, and sometimes you decide as a manager, do you, do you give them all again? And do you say, hey, overall, this person is contributing to the mission? Or do you say, no, this is a pattern of destructive behavior. And sometimes it's a tough call. It's always tough. I've had to let people go and other people, other managers do that. But yet you move on and you realize that it's for the good of the organization. And if you do so in a way where you're considerate about the other person's life and you can give them some feedback, they're like, okay, fine. Yeah, it was probably a bad idea. In this case, the alligator took care of that feedback. But otherwise, had she survived with that, I think the fireman who pulled her out of the situation or rescue crew would have also had a sitting down and talking to it. And like, yeah, never do that one again. If we think of probably something that, well, let's, let's throw up a scenario, for example, because I know your book had all these different use cases in there. And since it's not in front of me, I'll try to think of a couple of modern ones. And so, as we know, there's been a lot of move to remote work over the last couple of years. Thank you to COVID and just kind of in general. So let's imagine you're an organization that you hire a new employee to come work for you at your San Francisco headquarters, but they're living in Ohio. And okay, fine. HR policy is, is that they're going to be moving to their new location, but they've got a year to get there. Well, a year has gone by. This person is a rock star. She's doing amazing work for the firm and uh, yet she doesn't want to move. And so she's in Ohio and you know that other managers have asked for policy exceptions and been turned down, but Millie, you're kind of the only interface out there that knows that, well, she's kind of out of compliance. Good person, doing good work, but there's an HR rule that says, well, you've got to be coming into this office. That's sort of an ethical dilemma. What do you think? I think we go right back to some people can only see in terms of black and white, <laughs> and they follow a rule to the exact, and other people see shades of gray. Myself, if somebody's a rock star, I'm going to defend them to the end. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so we look out for our people. And, and I think that was the one thing that we, we learned in the Navy. I used to tell people when I was in command, I said, the worst thing you ever want to do is go after or cause some problems for one of my sailors because this, this captain's going to come after you. These angry eagles are going to swoop down on you like, a, like an angry mother hen and, and let you know that you don't mess around with the crew. And so I think a lot of us get very protective of our people. And we recognize that to a large extent, policies work well in general, but they don't always work very well individually. And yet, once you get to a certain size in an organization, you can't manage individually. You have two or three people or three people or four people, fine. But once you get to hundreds or even thousands, then you need some sort of infrastructure to keep that going. And most of the time we find out that the rules that are established are not objectionable. There's, it's ethical. People get time off for their families. They get time off for illness, perhaps, time and things such as that. But there certainly are situations where you might kind of go, yeah. so let me grab another one here. Again, these are some of the things I came up with. Your company's fully embraced diversity and equity and inclusion. Again, kind of a modern topic here. And it even has targets. It says that by 2025, we want Half of our managers to be female and a third of our managers to be from minority groups because, well, we're mostly white males. Historically, that's been our career pattern. Well, you're applying for a management role or you're, you have applicants for that. 
And you get two applicants, they're both white males, and they meet all the requirements. But you're not going to meet your diversity goals if you hire more white men. So what do we do? Do we keep looking? Do we say, nope, you're well qualified and you go and forget the quota? Or again, it's sort of kind of enough. You're, you're, how, how do you interpret something like that? Well, for me, it's all about getting the right people on the bus and then getting them the right seats on the bus. So if they're two white males and they're both highly qualified, I'm going after that. But the, the flip side of it is when we hire in our current company, we write monster and glass door. I mean, I spend a thousand bucks on advertising a job so that it's nationwide advertising and as many people as possible. And we have a real simple process that somewhere in the job posting is a requirement for you to do one simple thing. We throw away all the applications that don't do that one simple thing. So we don't look at diversity at all. We simply go, I'm hiring talent. And to a certain extent, you know, diversity, the, I think the most valuable is the diversity of a thinking style and decision-making style. We are influenced by our upbringing, our culture, our surroundings, who we consider our neighbors and things such as that. And it's quite possible that somebody else who had a different experience base is going to view the same situation and come to a completely different conclusion. And they go, hmm. I remember, go back telling old Navy stories, because I know you had served in the Navy as well. I had a tour of duty where I had command of the Center for Naval Leadership, and I had nine captains that were working for me on my advisory board. And one of the captains, I asked her if she would be part of that inner circle. And we did not see eye to eye on a lot of things. We often disagreed, but we respected each other. And we had been friends. And so I said, you're going to have the toughest job here. You're going to be like Bobby Kennedy was back during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Everybody's going to come to a consensus. They're going to go sing Kumbaya, we're together, and you're going to go roll a golden apple down the aisle and disrupt that. Because what I want to avoid is groupthink. And I want to avoid everybody piling on. And I said, nine out of 10 times, things aren't going to go the way you suggested. I know it'll be frustrating, but the 10th out of 10, you might save the ship through that insight. Will you please serve? And she did, and she did wonderfully well. And I think for some of us, although it's not really an ethical thing, but I'll throw that under ethics. We don't like to be disagreed with. To the extreme where you look for the syncophants, yes, boss, yes, boss, yes, boss. And then as we see perhaps sometimes even in international geopolitics, if you don't get unfiltered, useful information from what's going on, you tend to detach from reality. So finding that individual or individuals who can provide you with that input is really huge. In the Navy, what we did, if you had something that happened and it had to get reported to the captain, well, the chief would change it to make it look a little better. The junior officer would make it look better. It would go to the department head of the XO. And, and by the time it got to the commanding officer, it looked brilliant. And, and so in the Navy, they constituted the role of a senior enlisted leader, where this man or woman who had been in the Navy for quite a while was one of the troops. And therefore, the sailors are very comfortable exchanging things. And then bypass all that other and go right up. It's, it's, not a, it's not a workaround. It's not breaking the chain of command. It is the chain of command, but it allows the boss to make better considered decisions because you got access to more information. So when we're looking at a situation, is this ethical? Is it unethical? You're right. It's not always black and white. What are tools or techniques or ideas that you can think of that might be helpful for a manager particularly dealing with a new situation, to come up with some criteria to say, 
yeah, this is a good thing to do or no, it might make money, but it's not right. It's, it doesn't wash. Well, I'd like to ping off the thread that you were establishing. I found out for myself that I'm a bit of a visionary and definitely a risk taker. <laughs> I will take a lot of money and double down on something in a heartbeat. So one of the things that I learned 15 years ago is to make sure that my XO, my executive assistant, my lieutenant, my operator is someone who's careful. I try to always surround myself with a careful person, one who looks at things and is willing to, to talk to power, speak to power and say, Stephen, you're wrong. Simple example, the other day working on a marketing piece. And I wrote, we're going to have an open bar. And I thought from my time at Sands, an open bar meant you get one ticket for one free drink and then every other drink you have to pay for, right? No, apparently that's not the definition of the world. And two of our people just stood up and said, no, Stephen, you can't call it an open bar. And I went and looked it up and guess what? I was wrong. And I would have made a mistake and then people would have come expecting to have as many free drinks as they wanted. And they'd be mad at me that they only got one because that's the only drink ticket they had. And so I think that's an important strategy for any manager is figure out which personality type you are and surround yourself with people who will speak to power. And if you're the careful person, you need to realize that you're in danger of decision paralysis. You're in danger of never getting anything done. And so you want a go-getter type person to be close into you to say, hey, here's why I've got to go after this opportunity. If you're an opportunist, then you want the careful person. And I think the way I've likened it to folks is like, like having two guys back-to-back -back in a bar. If you're trying to do a startup, and I've done a few, and I found out that if you do it all on your own, it's really tough. Because you're not only doing the work, but you're writing the proposals and then trying to collect the money. And then you're cleaning the floor and you're wiring the computers and just on and on and you dilute it. But if you get somebody else, that's great. But if you get somebody who's almost the same as you, you're both facing the same direction at the same time. Well, in one way you say, hey, I'm doubling my power, but you're also doubling your blind spot. Mm -hmm. And when you double down on blind spots, you miss things. And the more confidence you have that you've got a lot of eyes looking on it, but they're not diverse, then the more likely you are to make a catastrophic error because there's just nobody calling out. And as you said, you need somebody, A, with the courage to speak truth to power, but then you as a person in power must not shoot messengers. In fact, I used to say the only message I will shoot is somebody who delayed the message for fear of the fact they didn't want to say, tell me early. You might be wrong, but say, hey, I think we might have a problem here. Okay, got it. And if it gets to a bigger problem later, all right, then we were heads up and we probably were able to mitigate it. If it went away, then okay, good. But I think one of the things that people concern themselves with, particularly if they're new in an organization or if there's an autocratic type of a management style that exists, is the fear of being able to bring or deliver bad news. And in the security world, as we know, this is this is not a soccer game. This is not a 1-0 final goal. This is more like a basketball game where there's a lot of back and forth with us and the bad guys. And what we try to do then is stop the three-pointers and don't give them any penalty shots. And if we just kind of keep a steady roll, we'll hit, take hits, we'll lose things like that. But at the grand scheme of things, the losses 
will be marginal. The errors will be recoverable and the lessons learned will be valuable. And I think that's a good way to measure our, our wealth as a CISO. Now, I think some of us know that there was a case this past year of a CISO going up for trial. And I know Joe Sullivan, I, I run into him and things like that, but he was at Uber. And for those, a little bit of a background on it, they were hacked a couple of times. Once in 2014, Joe got hired as a CISO in 2015, they got hacked again. And they had already disclosed their first breach of about 50,000 consumers and the FTC started investigating them. But afterwards testified that, yeah, we had gone ahead and done a whole bunch of things and we've complied, but 10 days later, they've been hacked again. Well, now, since the bad actors said they stolen a bunch of data and found out there's like, oh, I don't know, 57 million users and about 600,000 driver's licenses, that you can't let this get out. And so, hey, hackers, let's just call you consultants. Sign a non-disclosure agreement. We'll make it that we have a formal contract. We'll get you your hundred grand in Bitcoin. And by the way, all should be good. Now, that's enough without getting into too much more detail. But the big case there had to do, I think, with do you take a breach that is reportable under law and then try to say, well, actually, yeah, how about you guys are contractors and we'll sign an NDA and we'll pay you anyway. From an ethical perspective, I think we see that this has actually turned into a criminal thing. But how would you help a CISO or a security leader who might be in a situation where they're asked to, well, we don't really want to report this. This could be expensive or not, maybe not as extreme as this, but there's always a desire to look good, particularly before regulators, the government and things such as that. Uh, yet, if you have a duty to report, the concern is, well, you don't want to report every last single infraction or you'll be nothing, doing nothing but reporting all day long. So how do you sort out that ethical issue though? On one extreme, you could end up facing criminal charges. And on the other extreme, you end up putting your company out of business because all you're doing is 100% of your time is compliance and you never get any work done. Well, a very successful consultant was telling me one day about firing one of his clients. And that was a very big moment for me because my, and I've never been a consultant, but my notion was that you've got to kind of keep your clients. Or there's no business like repeat business. But his client was not behaving in such a way that he could do his job well. And so, as I said, I've never been a consultant, but I've certainly been an employee. I, I know that at times you always want to look good to the auditors, no doubt about it. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you definitely put your best foot forward for the auditors. Otherwise, they, they just smoke you. But when it comes to crossing the law, I go this far and no farther. There's a bridge that's too far. And I've, offered my resignation before several times in organizational situations where they want to cross the law because well, there's a reason for laws. We don't have to agree with them, but there's a reason for them. And the penalty of crossing the law is potentially going to be felt by me personally, something <laughs> I prefer to avoid, right? Um, I don't think you look good in orange, by the I way. So. I don't think it would. And so if a consultant can fire his client, I can fire myself. I was like, I don't belong here. And the other thing is, so many of these organizations that have a habit of breaking the law, that intentionally are skirting the law, they don't really get ahead. I mean, there are counterexamples, but at the end of the day, most of these organizations that keep trying to skirt the law, 
end up being surpassed by an organization that they don't have to worry about which lie they're telling this week. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember that you had put in one of your courses a set of company core values that included integrity, communications, respect, and excellence. And those are Enrons. And they went on a little bit more. It was almost like an anti uh, statement because they say, we do not tolerate this there. We don't tolerate that. And say like, hey, why would you put stuff like that unless you're almost kind of guilty of it? And of course, you know, Enron took down one of the big eight, which has now went to big six, big five. I call them big four and a half because you never know who else is going to merge or, or grow out of business. But as you had said, there may be situations that arise. And if asked to cross the line, even on a little one, and one is compliant because you're concerned about pleasing your boss or looking good, and it gets worse and worse in a way that's almost a counter espionage argument. If someone is trying to recruit somebody to be an unwilling spy and you find somebody who has perhaps financial difficulties or something that's black malleable, and anybody who's ever gone through a security clearance realizes that they're not poking into your background because they're voyeurs. They want to know two things. Are you loyal? And could somebody blackmail you into being not loyal? Uh, I had one, one friend that I'd work with him then his security clearance package was about this big. And I was the security officer at the time. And he was at one point in his life homeless and selling drugs. And he even drew a picture on a map. Well, here's the tree where I used to keep my sleeping bag at the, during the day when I would sell. But he said, but I met a woman. She straightened me out. We got married. We've had a couple of kids and my life's fine. And he got his top secret. He ended up retiring as an 06. And the whole idea wasn't so much the fact that it's a perfect record. It's just like, well, you've just laid everything out here. There's nothing anybody could use against you. and so. That on the one side, but the alternative, as I mentioned about, oh, you're in trouble. Hey, can you just give me a mailing list? Okay, give me every, give me the mail list of everybody in your company. And it's not classified and it's not sensitive. And in fact, it's kind of innocuous, but hey, here's, let me help you out. I feel bad. Here's 20 bucks, 50 bucks. Well, the next time a little less and before you realize it, you're now being asked for stuff you shouldn't have. And then they kind of got the hook already. They said, wait, you can't back out now because look what you've already done. And we'll, we'll blow you in, in a way like ransomware has morphed from being a denial of service attack where you couldn't get access to your system. What's a confidentiality attack where, okay, we're going to take deep, dark secrets and post them up on Payspin unless you pay us. And worse yet, we're going to go ahead and then sick the federal authorities on you because you violated HIPAA, you violated the PCI DSS or the California Consumer Privacy Act or something else like that. That brings me around to thinking about ransomware from an ethical perspective, not about doing it, but about the idea of paying the ransom. Are there ever any situations that you would consider ethically correct to pay the ransom? Heck yeah. If it's a difference between staying in business and going out of business, Pay the ransom. At the same time, there was actually a real story about this where they paid the ransom, but then began full on hunting down the hacker that had got him. And I don't remember the details of it, but they actually managed to run this guy to ground. So they paid the ransom, but it just bought them time. Yeah, I'm, I can see there are times when you should pay the ransom. It, it, it means that you made a horrible mistake and you don't have your data backed up in enough places that somebody owns you. And you have to better learn from that mistake. But if giving somebody $25,000 allows your company to survive, it probably makes sense. Yeah. And, and you look at it from not so much the absolute dollar value, but the run rate. If your production line shuts down, it's costing you three quarters of a million dollars a day not to be able to produce. And the ransom is 25000 Well, first of all, 
it's probably an opportunistic attacker who has no clue who they've got on the other end of that line. They may think they just have some grandmother in Iowa who's going to try to scrape together some money. And I like to say that executive trying to buy Bitcoin is like a grandmother trying to buy heroin. A lot of them have no idea how to get started. But more to the point is the only issue that you might face, less so much an ethical issue, is if the entity on the other end of that demand notice is listed on Treasury's OFAC list and the Office of Foreign Asset Control, which says you're basically breaking the law if you give money to Yevgeny or this person or that person, at which point sometimes some companies have gone to third-party intermediaries as if to say, well, I can't pay it legally, but I can do business with you. And then what happens past that point? I know And so that's in the question. Yeah, that's a workaround, sort of, kind of. But where does that fall on the ethical scale? People who are identified as on that OFAC list are going to get money, but you're not directly giving it to them indirectly. Where's that fit? Well, again, pursuit of higher principles. For ransomware to work, it means your backup system is not industrial strength. Mm -hmm. And so definitely you want to watch out for the money laundering point. I think you came up with a great workaround, but the, the key is you try to survive organizationally and then you try to do much better. Resilience is one of the keys to our current business strategy because we're in an earthquake zone, a tsunami zone, <laughs> hundred mile per hour winds. And so we have paid a lot of attention to resilience. And I think from a cyber perspective, we need to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. You're gonna take a hit. The point is don't go down with the ship, right? The point is have departments where your information is still protected. You can, you can restore from some known good source, no matter how much they get inside your organization, you just burn it all down and reload. And in a way, it does give you an argument as a CISO. If you're in an organization that, let's say, hasn't funded properly your security, your backups and things like that, but you have a perception that the leadership desires to act in an ethical manner. What you could point out is if they're setting themselves up for an unethical event, i.e. paying out ransom, why? Because you failed to prepare. And usually when these things occur, it's not, if you, here's a million dollars to go fix the problem that if you said, hey, if you gave it to me six months ago, it would have cost you a quarter of that. And this never would have happened. And so in a way, we use everything we can from an influence strategy as a CISO. We talk risk to our executives. We talk about prudent business practice. The purpose of security is revenue protection and generating additional business opportunities, not to just consume money like a hygiene factor where you're the toilet paper in the employee's washroom. Well, they got to have it there or someone will complain, but they're not going to put good stuff in there, which is why you want the key to the executive washroom. They've got the nice triple ply stuff that the bears use. But otherwise, ethics can be used as a persuasive argument, in my opinion, for those who wish to be ethical. And therefore, you can point out that an omission today could result in a negative commission tomorrow. And let's just not go there. Sounds like a reasonable way to put things. So if we think about it and we try to summarize it, like where do we get a general alignment of how to avoid going after things we shouldn't? I mean, to a certain extent, we can go back and look at Paul's letter to the Philippians. And this was Kind of the motto, I think it was, I think it was the motto for my alma mater, Northwestern University, Philippians 4.8, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just and pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report. If there be any virtue and if there be any praise, 
think on these things. So if we focus on truth, honesty, justice, being pure of heart, lovely, being of good report and virtue, I think we've got a pretty good reference point for knowing when we may or may not be getting close to the edge on something that would be an ethical dilemma and we can avoid going across the other side. Well said. Some of the translations say dwell on these things. Dwell on these things, yes. And that's probably a better approach. It's all good things. Well, Stephen, any last thoughts? Because we've, we're getting close to the end. Wow, this went fast. But I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the, the privilege of spending some more time with you. It has been fun. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Well, great. Thank you so much, Stephen, for being part of the CISO Tradecraft podcast. For our listeners, thank you for sticking with us and for being a member of our CISO podcast family. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn if you don't, because we have a lot more than just podcasts to offer. And if you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, and if you haven't rated us yet, hopefully give us a thumbs up or a five star. Why? Because that rating helps other people find us and we can help other people in their careers. So thank you very much for being part of our show and our audience. Stephen, again, appreciate spending the time with you and to our audience. Till next time, stay safe out there.